Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Critics rave about the unexpected and clever plot twists in Fiona Davis's historical bestsellers, dual timeline stories set in the Big Apple's iconic buildings, from the Chelsea Hotel to Grand Central Station and the Dakota Building to the Barbizon. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today in the 98th episode of The Joys of Binge Reading, Fiona talks about the famous and sometimes eccentric people who bring New York and her books to life. But just before we get to Fiona, just a reminder, a full transcript of this chat with links to Fiona's books and website is available on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And if you enjoy what you hear today, why not subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review so others will find us too. We'd love you if you did that. But now here's Fiona. Hello there, Fiona, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, look, this is the question I always start with, but it never gets stale. Was there a once upon a time moment for your fiction writing, a moment when you thought, I've just got to do this or I will have wasted my life? (laughs) It's such a great question. Yeah, you know, and, and it came to me later. I was in my late 40s when it hit. And what happened was I'd been working as a journalist for a number of years. And there was a story that I thought would make a great article about the Barbizon Hotel and some of the older tenants who were still living there as it was turned into luxury condos. And I thought, oh, what a great story. It kind of represents the change in the city and the building over time. But the women who live there are very private and they would not be interviewed. And I I just couldn't shake it. And I thought, all right, you know what? I'm going to make this into a book and I will write it. And that means I have to make stuff up. And that's very scary. But I was really determined. And I'm so glad I did it. It's just, it, it took my career in a completely new direction, which has been really, really fulfilling. It's wonderful. You've now got four best-selling historical novels to your credit, and the most recent of them, The Chelsea Girls, is also focused on a hotel, another very famous New York hotel, The Chelsea, which is almost notorious because of the numerous luminaries that have lived there, everyone from Dylan Thomas to Janis Joplin. Tell us about The Chelsea. Yeah, sure. So, Um, You know, the hotel really intimidated me as an idea for setting a book there. Um, Because so many people have passed through its doors, it was built in 1884 as kind of a a utopian cooperative, but that didn't work. And it went bankrupt and it became a hotel, but one where people could stay for years and and sometimes even decades. And so for years, it's been this kind of a a hotbed of, of intrigue in terms of both Um, art and politics and fashion, um, music, poetry. It just was almost overwhelming at the thought of trying to create a story around that building because there were so many to tell. Um, But I I really started focusing in on the McCarthy era 
1950 and also the late 60s because that's when it was really bubbling um, with, with creativity. And the more I dug and the more I learned about it, the more I thought, yes, this is the perfect setting for a book because on top of everything, it has a secret tunnel, <laughs> and, <laughs> which is an author, you're like, yeah, that's a gift. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and I gather from reading a little bit of the background on it that you had a very strong source to help you with your research, someone, a first-person um, authority who had actually lived through this period in the New York um, theatre scene. Yes, exactly. Um, a couple of years ago, I was introduced to Virginia Robinson, who was born in 1909. And she spoke with such detail about what it was like for her being an actress, not only in the USO tour during World War II, um, but also later in New York City, where she was a, a, an understudy for Faye Ray and Vivian Lee, and, and had this amazing career that lasted all the way until her death last year at the age of 99. Um, yeah, she, she was just incredible and, and her memories were so vivid and she talked about the McCarthy era, which is really what set me down this road where she talked about how actor friends of hers were targeted and listed in this book called red channels. Um, and if you were listed in that, it meant that you had communist tendencies and would be blacklisted, which meant your career was over. And she, yeah, it was just an incredible story she had to tell. And I think that for a lot of us, we're familiar with the way that McCarthyism um, intruded into the Hollywood scene and, and script writers' careers were ruined, but possibly people weren't so aware of the fact that it spread its tentacles to New York as well. And I must admit, I was a bit shocked to read that it, it's, it's, it seems in some aspects it was almost like a shakedown, that if people had enough money, they could almost buy their way back into favour. Yes, exactly. That was what I, I was so shocked to find as well, that it was really a racket where the same company that published Red Channels, which listed everybody who was blacklisted, if you wanted to clear your name, you could go to the same company that published it and pay them $200 and get your name cleared. But at the same time, if you did that, you still had to list names of people who also were communists. So you still had to throw your friends under the bus. And some people did, and went on to fantastic careers. Um, you have Jerome Robbins, you have Elia Kazan, who named names, and then others who didn't, who were right on the cusp of these incredible careers and were, have just been lost to history. We don't know the plays that were never written or the performances that we never saw um, because these people never achieved what their talent m meant for them to, and, and that's such a tragedy. Yes, it sounds like there could still be lots of amazing stories left to tell there, actually. Yeah, oh, I think so, most definitely. Mm. You seem to have a thing about hotels because <laughs> your second novel as well, The Address, was set in the Dakota. And for people of my generation, that place is made famous by the fact that it was where poor John Lennon was attacked and died. Why do you think hotels attract you and, and why do they make a great setting for a novel, do you think? Yeah, you know, in, in fact, the, my first book, which was set at the Barbizon Hotel for Women, was also a hotel. The Dakota has always been an apartment house. So it's still where people... Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no worries. It's, it's kind of confusing the way New Yorkers set up their residences back in the 1800s. It makes it very confusing. Um, but the Dakota was meant to be kind of one of the first apartment houses in New York. And I just love 
where people writing about buildings where people lived because you have not only the residents stories you have the servants stories um mm. and 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 also how things were built like the dakota that was built up in the wilds of new york where it was just swampland and and goats and shanties and they they created this luxury building using all the best materials and it was a real risk at the time. So it's a fun thing to write about from an author's point of view, because there's so much at stake um, yes. for, for that. And I think it's just wonderful to, to cram a lot of people together and have them interact. You just have inherent drama. Yes, sure. Yeah. You've set all of your books in New York, although I gather you were born in Canada yourself, weren't you? Yes, Exactly. But you're a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker now. Um, do you think that the city's coming of age as a setting for historical novels? I mean, I, I'm just rather interested because Regency England has got such a, a, a sort of throat hold, really, on romance. You can almost hardly <laughs> write romance without setting it in Regency. And it excites me to f- find other settings that are getting some traction. Do you think New York is going to continue to grow as an attractive setting? Oh, I hope so. I don't think anything will compete with Regency England. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, and, and Regency romances are, some of them are just the, the finest thing to read. I, I mean, it, I, I love that genre and absolutely respect it. And I think New York, you know, has been the setting for a lot of literary fiction. And for historical mm. fiction, it's wonderful because the city's really changed over time. Yet a lot of the buildings haven't. And so you have these layers of ghosts who've lived within their walls. Um, And so, and and also the city just attracts people who are looking for something. And again, that, that creates drama and it always makes for a good story to have someone come here, be overwhelmed, figure things out and go on to, to survive and thrive. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I, I was interested to come across a historical romance author called Joanna Shoup. I'm not sure if you're aware of her work, but she's getting some traction setting romance novels in Gilded Age New York. She's done four, of, I think four or five of them now set, set in Gilded Age New York. So that, that's quite fun to see something like that coming through. Oh, I love it. I think that's a, that's a great, great time in history. And that's where the Dakota was built in 1884. And so part of the book I wrote about that called The Address was set in the Gilded Age and it was just so rich. Yes. Literally. Tremendous. <laughs> the, the social rivalries between the factions at that, at, well, I think perhaps that was more the early 1900s, but the Vanderbilts and the Astors, that's a great period, isn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that is Gilded Age to a T. That is just so much fun. So what drew you to historical fiction as such when you, when you I, I know you said that it was the, um, the Barbizon that grabbed your attention, but to continue in the historical track, is there something about the historical aspect that really appeals to you? You know, I think it, it comes from, my parents are both English and, and we would travel back to England to visit relatives when I was a kid. And to kind of break up the journey from relative to relative, we'd stop at these estates and castles you know, we always hit the Tower of London. And so I just loved the idea of how old everything was. And, yeah. you know, just the, the many people who'd lived within the walls of all these amazing buildings. And I think part of me wanted to time travel back and yeah. and see what it was like to be a maid in the Tower of London, you know, in the in the, the 1700s or, or, you know, an aristocrat in the 1800s. And um, 
And so I think part of me in writing historical fiction is wanting to time travel. I'm, I'm pretty oh. sure of it. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, you mentioned the literary fiction that New York is so well known for. And I see on your website that you're taking part in an event in January to honour the 100th anniversary of the publication of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence, her Pulitzer Prize winning novel about Gilded Age New York. I know that genre fiction is slightly different from literary fiction, although these days the, there's, there's quite a, a blending of the, the boundaries between them. But do you feel that you're part of a tradition in, in what you're doing? Oh, my goodness. I would be honoured to be part of that tradition. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've, I think we deal with a lot of the same themes about the rules of society and the consequences of breaking them. Um, kind of reconciling old and new in terms of how how things change over time, especially just how women's voices and agency have changed over time. And and for every every one of my books has a character who um, is really struggling with with where she is in the world and what her place is, and the fact that she maybe is divorced or has something you know different going on about her that is or wants a career in the 50s when everybody else wanted to be be wives or were supposed to be wives. And so just living up to society's expectations is something I find fascinating and and which of course she does so brilliantly. And I think you've also expressed very well the appeal that possibly historical fiction has for modern readers too. Um would you say that it, I I think there has been a real upswell of stories that focus on women's stories and the women that did try to break the barriers. Is that part of its appeal to modern readers, do you think? I definitely think so. Just to see how far we've come and yet how far we still have to go. In in my first book, I, I quote from an actual article from a women's magazine that I found that talked about, um, it listed the best part-time jobs for women because it said that working full-time cuts too deeply into the satisfactions of housekeeping. And of course, you wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and this was an actual article in a women's magazine. And, and so you can just see how if you read something like that today, you would think, well, you know, that's, that's insane. That's crazy. But back then, that was... That was the norm. And so it's really fun to see those changes over time. And I think that's why there is such an appeal um, of h historical fiction to today's readers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess we have to also remember that the joys of housekeeping in those days, they actually were a lot more time consuming because we didn't have so many, um, you know, things to help us with it. But still, yeah. <laughs> that's a very good point, right? Ironing was not like ironing today. <laughs> nor was washing for that matter no, no. Uh, look I see on Twitter that you're offering I thought this was great I've never seen it before a Skype in for a book club if they're reading the Chelsea girls they can have a Skype in with you and that is a draw on 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 Twitter and Facebook I think yeah um do you do this often and, and how does it work you know, it's it's so much fun because, it, you know, I, I often visit book groups that are in the city or nearby, um, which is just so much fun because you really um, can can talk about a wide variety of things in that in that context. It's not like me going to a bookstore and talking about my book and answering questions. It's more interactive. And and so, yeah, you know what they do is they they get everything set up and, and Skype in. And ask me questions, and we talk about the book, and we all have a glass of wine. 
And, um, you know, it doesn't matter if they're in Kansas or Texas. It, it just feels just really comfortable and, and fun. So I, I love doing it. And, I mean, because I'm in New Zealand, it, it, it sort of seems to me that it would be quite an opportunity to extend it internationally if, if you had, if the time zone was right. It still wouldn't be completely impossible and it would be a completely new thing for New Zealand readers, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. I think that would be great. They should definitely enter. I think that would be fun. Great. <laughs> How do you stop them all talking on top of each other? Do, do, do you have a sort of MC who gives a little nod to somebody your turn now? Yeah, usually there's a ringleader. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they kind of guide the discussion. And um, But, but it, it happens, it flows really naturally because everybody's, the book club's all in the same room together. Um, so it's yes. not like we're all coming in on different yeah. feeds. Yeah. And, and so yeah. it, it really is just um, easy and, and flows quite well. That's lovely. Look, critics rave about your unexpected and clever plot twists. You're a great storyteller in your plotting. And I wondered if you could give us an idea about how the process of your creation works. I, I imagine that you must do quite a bit of outlining rather than being what they call a pants or a person who writes by flying by the seat of her pants. But tell us how you approach it. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, you know, I love a good plot twist. And I love books that have a sense of mystery that keep you turning the page where you're, you're trying to find out what's going to happen and you're surprised by it. And because I work in two time periods and go back and forth, I have to plot it out really carefully um, because if I give away too much of one thing about the mystery in one timeline, it'll affect the other. So it's mm. it's a pretty painful process, but it's so much fun as I see if I can pull it off, if I can make that plot twist work and surprise my agent and surprise my editor and then surprise the readers. And so what I do is I do a lot of research about the building and figure out the the real structure of the historical background and usually that infuses the characters and the plots. And then I figure out the, I, I kind of put it on sticky notes, um, ideas for scenes, and then arrange them. And there are two different sticky, it's very, very high tech. There are two different <laughs> post-it notes for each color represents a different uh, timeline. And then I can weave them together. And from that, I create an outline. And from that, I start writing. And things change, but it tends to track pretty closely if I've done it right. That sounds great because I did wonder, I mean, one of the criticisms about outlining is that you um, you limit the kind of possibilities of characters developing their own um, agency, I suppose. But do you ever find that characters take off in a direction that you weren't expecting or refuse to do what you want them to do? Yes, definitely. And if that happens, it means I have to go with it. You know, I, I remember writing a scene for the Chelsea Girls where the two characters are in love and they, as I was writing it, they started breaking up, which they weren't supposed to do then. <laughs> and it was, I, I was saying it was, it was sort of like watching my parents fight where I was like, wait, what are you guys doing? Stop. No, no. <laughs> and, um, and, but I went with it and it was exactly right for the book. It, it propelled the story forward in a way that needed to be propelled. So I've learned to trust that and not get too into my kind of engineering head of everything yes. has to be this way because that that can cut the the fun. Yes, it's like that the motivation of the characters sometimes they 
may know at a deeper level than you do just exactly what is motivating them. Yeah, exactly right. I can tell you right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, because I've been reading some somewhere someone said that if you feel as if you've come to a bit of a dead end in your story, if things just aren't working, the problem probably is that you haven't understood the motivation of your characters enough. Go back and have a look at that. And I find that works every time. If you just have a bit of a brainstorm, almost like a daydream, asking them what what they're going to do next or why they feel this way, it suddenly all frees up again. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what you have to do. It's it's you just have to go back to the source, which is the character and what they want and what are the obstacles in their way. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Have you found that writing fiction is very different from your journalism? Yes. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, you're making things up, which in journalism you do not do. And, and so, you know, when I was first writing dialogue, I thought, oh, no, this is, you know, this is crazy. How do you do this? But I really just went and studied books that I love and what was their structure and how did they pull it off? And, and just got more and more involved in it. And now I, I absolutely love the freedom that it offers. Yes, yes. And I guess you've probably dropped all the journalism, have you? Yeah, at this point. I'm doing about a book a year at this point, so it is all hands on deck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, turning to your wider career, as we've mentioned and referred to, you've had experience in both theatre and journalism before becoming a novelist. How do you think that your previous work experience has influenced and perhaps helped your work? Yeah, sure. You know, I think what we were just talking before about dialogue, having read a lot of plays, I think that helped in terms of when I did have to write dialogue because I'd seen how playwrights do it, where it's just words. There's no, you don't tell what your character's thinking. That's up to yeah. the actor. And so I yeah. think that helped. And also just stage managing a scene of, okay, someone's standing. How do I make it dynamic? So it's not just people sitting on a couch talking to each other. Mm, and mm. so that that's helped a lot. And in journalism, it's from all the research I do of going out and talking to architectural historians and people who've stayed at the hotels that I'm writing about and getting all that vivid, vivid detail to add to the book. Yes, yeah. Is there one thing you've done more than any other that you'd see as being the secret of your success? You know, I think it's that I set goals for myself and I'm one of those people who loves to check things off lists. <laughs> and <laughs> so if I have on my, you know, to-do list to write 1500 words that day, I do it just for the satisfaction of checking it off. And it's those small increments of work of, okay, I'm going to edit two chapters today. All right. By the end of the week, I'll be here. And by three months you have a first draft. And, and so it's just doing something every day and getting fulfillment out of doing it, even though sometimes it's just so painful and, you know, the words aren't coming or, or the edits don't make sense, that just keeping at it is, is really the key. Yes. Yeah. And when it does get a little tiresome, have you got any tips for keeping the creative juices flowing? What do you do to reward yourself or give yourself a little break? You know, I will go for a run along. I live right near the Hudson River here in New York. So it's really nice to go for a run along the river and just clear my head and, um, you know, watch this huge body of water flowing. There's something about that that makes your, mm. you know, problematic character seem manageable, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know? And, and I also love to go to plays and movies 
or, or watch something with a narration that's completely different than mine, just to kind of reboot my brain as to how other people tell stories. I find that very helpful. Yeah. I think that writing has become quite strongly influenced by movies over the last decade, hasn't it, too? I mean, we have to be aware of, of how people are watching movies and some of our writing probably becomes a little bit more fast-moving and, 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 and full of imagery, I guess. Yeah, and I, you know what I've noticed also recently is that the, the books I'm reading, instead of having a chapter that's you know flows through five or seven pages, you'll get a page and a half and then a break and then a page and a half and then another scene break. So it's almost like you're watching TV and it's jumping from a scene to scene instead yeah. of a long flowing one, which is fascinating. And the, uh, the, the authors who do it well, I find, are, I, I'm in awe of. Yes, and I think that readers probably just probably accept that without even really the, the, the not someone who isn't a writer wouldn't necessarily even notice that, but it would flow because they're used to that scene flow in, in movies. Exactly, yeah, which is interesting. I just see it more and more, which I find very interesting. Mm. Can you think of a writer you at this? I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but can you think of a writer who? does that well that you've read recently? Yeah, the book I'm reading now is called The Secrets We Kept by Lara Prescott. And oh, yeah. yeah, and it's a big bestseller here. It's um, doing quite well. And it's about, uh, it's a little after the McCarthy era and it's about the, the, the spies and people trying to get Dr. Zhivago back into Russia where it's banned to, you know, as part of the Cold War. It's, it's really interesting. But there she, she breaks it up quite quite a lot but it's perfectly fine you go you absolutely go along for the ride that's great because it leads us very nicely into talking about Fiona as reader this podcast is called the joys of binge reading and it's focused on writers who've done more than one book series or series of books that are related that people can follow through on so are you a binge reader? And if so, who do you like to binge read? Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about this. And what's interesting is they're all based in the UK and Ireland, which is so funny. Um, there's there's a writer called Eve Chase. And I just read her book. It doesn't come out until next year. I got an early copy, but it's called The Daughters of Foxcote Manor. She's also written a book called The Wildling Sisters. And she sets book books in manor houses in England with um, dual timelines and kind of a connection of mothers and daughters or, or families. And she writes so beautifully. And the minute one of her books comes out, I, I leap all over it. Um, another one is Joe Baker, who wrote Longborn, which is um, Pride and Prejudice from the Servant's Point of View. And I love that book so much, I'll watch any, I'll, I'll um, read anything she writes. And, and also Tana French, who does mystery so beautifully. Um, in Ireland with such great characters. So again, if that comes out, I'm, I'm all over it. That's the Canadian coming out on you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Isn't it funny? <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> That's great. I haven't heard of either Eve or Joe, so I must look them up. I am very much aware of Tana's work. Yeah. 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 And Joe is J.O. Baker. Uh-huh. Great. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah. So circling around, looking over the the stretch of your writing career at this stage. Um, if you were going back and doing it all over again, is there anything that you would change? And if so, what? Uh, it's such a good question. I, you know, I, 
I really feel like all of the mistakes I've made have been helpful in terms of making me look at something a different way or approach something a different way. And again, because I started writing a little later um, in life, I, I don't judge mistakes the way I might have when I was in my 20s. You know, it's not the end of the world. If anything, it's a new opportunity. And I really understand that now. So I don't think I'd change a thing. I'm, I'm happy to be doing this now. I don't think I would have been as happy if I'd had this success earlier. I really can yeah. appreciate it. Um, so so I, I don't think I'd change a thing. It's been just an absolute laugh riot. <laughs> Fantastic. So you, you obviously set out wanting to be traditionally published right from the start. Was that a bit of a struggle to break into? You know, I lucked out in, in that I'd, I'd taken classes and online writing classes and I'd been writing as a journalist for a long time, which helped. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'd gone to author panels and heard agents talk. And so I really got my agent from having heard her talk at a panel and sending her a manuscript and saying, you know, I heard you speak and you're looking for strong female characters. So, here you go. And and so I think all those small things helped me bump up the, the process a little bit. Um, where just everything just seemed to kind of fall into place. And again, I think it was just waiting until I had something to say in my life yes. to write. Yes. Yeah. So that was the doll's house, was it? That yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. That really is. And I can see that with a, a network in place like that, it would have been, you would have had some advantages, but still, obviously, the manuscript was right up to, to, to it for it to be so straightforward. That's fantastic. So what is next for Fiona, the writer? Have you got a project in the works at the moment? I do. It's sitting right in front of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do. The next book is going to take place at the New York Public Library, um, ah. which is a beautiful building right on Fifth Avenue. It's called the Lions of Fifth Avenue after the lions that are situated out front. Um, and and it, I learned in my research that there was a, an apartment inside the library for the building superintendent to live in with his family. And he lived there for about 20 years in this beautiful seven-room apartment right in the heart of the library with his uh, wife and a few kids. And they would play um, baseball up in the reading room using books as bases until they got into trouble. <laughs> and I just thought, well, that's an interesting idea. So it's set in 1913 and 1993 at the library. And again, it's about book theft and, um, and, and how women's roles have changed over time. Fantastic. Have you any temptation to change genres and maybe like do a straight romance or something that's... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> dual timeline, but over centuries rather than just you know thirty or forty years. Yeah, yeah, I do have a couple ideas for that, which and and also different locations and yeah, possibly different structures. I you know I love writers who who kind of explore and and try new things, like the way Tana French did with her her The Witch Elm, where she kind of took it off in a, a different direction. Yes, and so yeah, yeah, I look forward. I look forward to playing around. There's one writer that I often mention because I love her work. That's a writer called Julia McElwain. She's been on the podcast, but she does um, mysteries where an FBI agent is jetted back into 1815 England. Oh. And that's a, it's, a, it's a great, she's doing it really well. And she, she develops um, an, an, a romantic relationship there. So now she's got this quandary of, She's still dying to get back to her home. I think she's actually based in Washington. 
um, she's dying to get back home to the nine, to the twenty twenty thousands. But um, she she's in a quandary about whether she leaves Alex behind or tries to bring him with her. So oh no, oh that sounds wonderful. That's great. Yeah, see, that's ambitious. I think that's terrific. You obviously welcome interaction with your readers because of the Skype book um, deal. Mm-hmm. How do people find you and where is the easiest way to reach you? Yeah, sure. So my website is fionadavis.net and you can contact me through that with no problem. I'm on Twitter um, as Fiona J. Davis and also Instagram as Fiona J. Davis. And I'm on Facebook as Fiona Davis author. And I, I do a lot on Facebook and Instagram, less on Twitter. Uh-huh. Look, that's great. I can vouch for the fact that you're remarkably responsive. It's been great to talk to you. And links to all of those sites will be included in the show notes for this episode. So people will be able to just click on the link and get through to you. Look, it's been wonderful talking, Fiona. I've loved hearing about your work and all the very best with the Lions. What was it called? The, the Lions, Lions of Fifth Avenue. Of Fifth Avenue, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. And really, I really appreciate uh, being able to reach your readers. And, and thank you for the invitation. This has been fantastic. Great questions. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.